Hey everyone, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this is a special last-minute Halloween episode of The Week in Doubt. I'm feeling the Halloween spirit, and this is around the time of the week when I start putting an episode together, so I figured why not. And yes, I am still working on that Baphomet episode. I'll try to have that ready to go for next week. So first up, a timely story that caught my attention yesterday. So it's from Patheos's The uh, Friendly Atheist, and it's entitled, Christian Writer Urges Believers Not to Celebrate Quote-Unquote Demonic and Quote-Unquote Evil Halloween. And it's not by Hemet Mehta, it looks like it's by Sarah Beth Kaplan. And just that title alone took me back to when I was a kid. I'm a Gen Xer, so I can remember the uh, so-called satanic panic. I can remember uh, preachers on TV warning parents about the evils of Dungeons and Dragons and heavy metal. And uh, yeah, Halloween. And my mic seems to be picking up some kind of bumping or rumbling noise, so my apologies, and hopefully that clears up. Spooky, maybe it's a ghost. Kidding, obviously. I did have a hard drive grinding away in the background, so just in case I shut that down. This Blue Yeti mic is incredibly sensitive, and it's very good, almost too good at picking up ambient noise. Whenever I record, I usually have to shut down all the electronics in the room that aren't, you know, absolutely necessary. It is funny though, I, I was joking about ghosts. Uh, I was almost going to do a story um, that involved a ghost. So you guys are familiar with the tale of woe that is my life by now. Uh, I have a graphic design degree, which I'm letting go to waste for some reason. Will I keep myself stuck in the family construction business? So today, my brother and I were replacing a big casement window in this uh, woman's house. And um, while we were working in the background, I was facing the window, which we had out. Uh, and in the background, she had her this big TV on. And it was some show that I don't think I've ever seen before. It was one of those kind of people's court type of... Uh, you know, inspired shows. I think it was called Hot Bench. <laughs> I remember there was actually uh, this uh, female bailiff that I found rather attractive. But anyway, so yeah, one of those um, shows where people come in with these kind of petty, relatively petty cases and these, uh, I don't know if they're technically retired judges or if they're still technically active or what, but, you know, and, and you have these... TV judges trying to um, rule on the cases or whatever. And so there are these two couples. Um, one of the couples had been renting room to the other couple. And I guess they found them on Craigslist or whatever. And I guess this young couple, it was technically the, um, the guy who owns the house or the apartment or whatever it was, this young guy that needed uh, some additional income. So he was, you know, renting out part of his home or whatever. And the guy was definitely a piece of work, definitely didn't seem like he was playing with a full deck or whatever. 
uh, probably had anger issues, etc., etc. And one of the grievances he had against this other couple who he had been renting to is that he blamed them for bringing a ghost into his home. And supposedly he even had footage of it. And they played the footage. And wouldn't you know, it was just like your average ghost hunter, pareidolia bullshit, you know? It was like the shadowy blob that could have been anything that he was trying to claim was a ghost. Even if... Not even if. I, I strongly doubt the existence of spirits, ghosts, etc., uh, one of the reasons why is is because of the dearth of evidence. Um, it always seems to be pretty shoddy. It, it's either, you know, these sketchy EVP recordings, uh, which to me amount to what I like to call audio Rorschach. You know, it's completely or, or audio pareidolia, completely open to interpretation, or it's the visual equivalent some type of shadow or static or whatever, you know, it's never a, a clear, detailed image of some kind of humanoid apparition. And if it is, it's, you know, usually CGI or some other kind of doctoring or whatever. But let's say for the sake of argument, it was actually a ghost. I don't know... What does the law say about bringing a ghost into someone's home? I mean, what what would the possible <laughs> legal penalty be or whatever? But I was going to try to track down that episode online and just pick it apart as a last-minute Halloween special. But um, I, I don't think I'd be able to track it down in time. You know, I'm absolutely fascinated by supernatural topics, including ghosts. It's just that brass tacks at the end of the day, eh, don't really believe they exist. But anyway, with that, um, that Patheos article, yeah, so th this was nothing new to me. Christians talking about the uh, supposed evils of Halloween. And one thing that they often bring up is the fact that Halloween has pagan roots, and maybe recently you listened to that replay I did of uh, my uh, Halloween, a, a brief history episode, where I actually go into the pagan roots of Halloween. So that is absolutely true. A lot of cr major Christian holidays uh, have pagan roots. Um, to me, that's one of the cool things about them. I mean, you take away, you you take the Sawin out of Halloween. Um, you know, you, you take away all the, the spooky trappings, etc. The skeletons and the witches and the smiling death's head jack-o'-lanterns, etc. You'd just be left with uh, All Hallows' Eve and, uh, you know, and or All Souls' Day. Basically, what would probably be a, a very sober and somber celebration, in quotes, uh, in general of Catholic saints, you know? But I'll read a little bit from that article. Pastor Jamie Morgan wants you to be safe this Halloween. That's why she wrote a list of precautions. But because she's writing for Christian outlet Charisma, there's nothing about checking the wrappers on candy, having adult supervision while trick-or-treating, or checking your hall for possible allergens. Rather, Morgan wants your soul to be safe on Halloween. 
by not celebrating it at all. So not at all. Interesting. When I was a kid, the same people that would preach about the pagan roots of Halloween and this whole kind of satanic panic stuff, I remember some of them would suggest an alternative where instead of having your kids go door to door, you have an indoor party somewhere where your kids dress like biblical figures, etc. And and that was the kind of uh, Christian compromise or whatever. But I'll continue. In a spirit of full disclosure, when I was a brand new believer, I allowed my son to go trick-or-treating. Part of the reason was because my husband was not yet saved and insisted we do. So this must be that pastor, uh, I imagine. The other part was because I didn't see the harm in it. After all, many Christians I respected did it. So as a new Christian, I justified that it must be okay, right? Wrong. As I grew closer to the Lord and gained more knowledge of his word, I began to feel convicted about Halloween. I had thoughts like, and here's a bullet point, God is a God of life, but Halloween focuses on death. Should I celebrate a holiday where people decorate their front yards with tombstones? And I'm actually going to cut her a little bit of a break here because I actually think that's understandable from a... Christian perspective, you know, when you take a step back and look at Halloween as if for the first time and you see all this morbid death oriented imagery, I can understand why people from that perspective would find it kind of unsavory or uh, lugubrious, excessively morbid or whatever. Um, And as a non-believer, To me, I think this is one of the fascinating aspects of Halloween. I don't think it's littered with all this macabre imagery because, you know, Satan's behind it or whatever and trying to lead people away from God. Um, I think it says something very human about us and it kind of shines a light on the psychology or at least on part of the psychology of the human experience, where I think it's pretty much an inherent part of the human experience, uh, a universal part, that we're disturbed by the idea of our own mortality. Um, And yet at the same time, we know this is something we're going to have to deal with. This is something that we're going to have to experience and before we do it's very likely that we're going to have to experience the passing of our um you know the deaths of people we love and care about etc um and so i think rightly we're very disturbed by this but at the same time because it's such a big part of our reality and it's something that we're all going to have to face that we're also fascinated by it. And so I think Halloween kind of gives us a chance to celebrate that morbid fascination. Um, And it also gives us a chance to kind of thumb our noses at death a bit, you know, but I'll continue with the article. And so this must be the author's commentary. 
Um, it's not real death. It's pretend. Something Morgan ought to be very familiar with. Even the Mexican holiday Day of the Dead is all about honoring deceased ancestors. Hardly a celebration of death and gore. But by Morgan's logic, Christians shouldn't celebrate that either. We'll have to say, to me, Halloween, or at least modern Halloween, is partially a kind of celebration of death and gore. But as they say, you know, pretend, not real death and gore. We're not gathering in some Roman Colosseum and uh, exulting in, you know, the death and evisceration of real human beings. But it's a time where we can kind of stare death down and uh, have fun with uh, macabre or morbid imagery. And I know as something of a horror movie buff that obviously Halloween is a big time of the year for horror movies um, and kind of, you know, gruesome uh, looking costumes that progressively get more and more gruesome and convincing by the year, you know. In particular, I'm talking about some of those kind of hair-raising latex masks that have gotten to the point where they almost look like horror movie props, you know. But not everyone embraces that intense gore aspect of it. And actually, I'd say most people don't. Most people tend to embrace the more kind of light, fun, and fantasy aspect of it. Uh, The chance to dress up and pretend you're someone else, uh, you know, the sexy witch or uh, the the Scottish Highlander or whatever. And the death aspect is maybe relatively PG for a lot of people, you know, an articulated cardboard skeleton or something like that. Uh, But it is a time of year for horror movie fans to kind of, you know, let loose and don some of those kind of grislier outfits and masks and stuff and uh to have more of an excuse to binge on you know violent horror movies etc but i'll continue with the article and here's another one of her bullet points the scriptures tell us to put away deeds of darkness and supposedly that's romans thirteen twelve, and that light has nothing in common with darkness uh corinth um second corinthians six fourteen. Is celebrating a dark holiday something a child of light should be doing? And for some reason, when she says child of light, it makes me think more of um, Tolkien elves than uh, <laughs> than uh, Christianity. I don't know. Is it Tolkien or Tolkien? Uh, I-, I read the books as a kid, including... Uh, well, I read the Silmarillion when I think I was in my late teens, early 20s which is like the the Tolkien equivalent of the Bible and almost as dry to read or whatever. Uh, Just absolutely huge, uh, voluminous book. But yeah, read the books and I still don't know what the proper pronunciation is. So then the writer or the author continues with their commentary. It's only as dark as you make it, Jamie. If you don't like the tombstones in people's yards, you don't have to put them in your own. Nor do you or your kids have to dress up as scary creatures. You can even forego haunted houses and scary movies. But let's not pretend putting on a costume and getting candy is a surefire ticket to hell. So here we have another bullet point. I had been delivered from fear and panic attacks and knew that fear comes from the enemy. Should I participate in a holiday that has fear at its very foundation? And once again, this goes back to what I was saying, that you know, there's a psychological aspect 
to Halloween or a psychologically revealing aspect about the human experience. And I already went into how I think in part it has to do with our fear of and confrontation of our own mortality. And I think fear is a big part of not a that sounds pretty negative, but fear is a fundamental part of the human experience. It's a basic and primal human emotion. And I think there's part of us that likes to be scared and, you know, scared in kind of a controlled way uh, on our terms. You know, we can sit in the safety of our house and watch a scary movie and kind of uh, give ourselves or subject ourselves to this kind of harrowing thrill ride. But at the end of it, we know we're still in the safety of our own home or whatever. So I think, you know, it gives us a chance to kind of confront fear, have fun with fear, etc. And so I'll probably stop with the article there because uh, as I'm recording this, it's 1030 at night and I'm going to have to wake up at like 7 tomorrow morning for work again. Uh, But there was one other thing that I think is kind of on topic that I wanted to, uh, to mention in this episode. So recently, you know, I've had Amazon Prime for probably a year and a half or something like that now. But I just really started to dig in again, you know, and take advantage of Prime Video. And I think what sparked it, and maybe they'll listen to this, is that uh, my friend Amanda kept urging me to watch an Amazon Prime original entitled uh, The Man in the High Castle based on a uh, Philip K. Dick story. And I actually binge-watched all three seasons. I really liked it. Um, Then I started binge-watching another series. I don't know if it's an Amazon original too or if Amazon just has the rights to it, you know, to uh, allow their prime subscribers or customers to access it or whatever but it's a series called lore and i guess it's based on a popular podcast and as a podcaster myself i have to admit that at first i wasn't sure i wanted to watch it because i'm not proud of it but i almost felt like this petty jealousy or competitive type of thing where Here's this really popular podcast that deals with uh, folklore and legends and stuff that even though I'm a non-believer that I'm really interested in. And uh, it's stuff that I like to dabble in with this show sometimes too. In that I've often, well a couple times I've talked about on the show how I I want to branch out and and keep doing this podcast. But maybe do a couple of additional podcasts too. And one of them, if I ever get around to it, will be focused on mythology as well as some folklore, etc. So I wasn't sure I wanted to listen to this other podcast or do this thing that I want to do or whatever, you know. But I decided to give it a chance and I quickly kind of fell in love with the first season and and I binge-watched the whole thing. And I actually liked the fact that they had the host of the podcast partially narrate each episode and I also liked these very charming kind of animations that they had Um, and I noticed that although the first season was met with rave reviews 
The second season only had like two and a half or three stars out of five or something. And I, and I thought the first season was so good that I didn't know, you know, what the heck could have happened to cause such a drastic drop in critical reception or whatever. But before I go on to give my thoughts on the second season, I should say, uh, you know, I really enjoyed the first season, as I was saying. And one of the episodes has to do with something that I've been long been fascinated by. Uh, kind of fascinated and freaked out by, because it kind of falls into that Uncanny Valley territory. And it has to do with uh, Robert the Doll. Robert the Doll was uh, the subject of one of the episodes of the, uh, the first season. Uh, I quickly realized what the problem was with the second season when I started watching it. And a lot of other people ha had the same concerns or criticisms. They got rid of the narration, which, as I was saying a minute ago, had been provided by the host of the original podcast, which I think added a lot of charm to the show. And it also made the show seem more educational or informative. And they also seem to strip away some of those animations I mentioned, too. There's still a little bit of animation here and there in the second uh, season. So all you're really left with are these dramatizations. And the stories are so dramatized that it's hard to tell where the writer's artistic license ends and real history and fact begins. So it doesn't feel like the same kind of educational experience as the first season. Um, for instance, well, the very first episode deals with Burke and Hare, who are these two kind of what they would call resurrection men or grave robbers, who back in the day, you know, in the 19th century, would, would get paid to deliver fresh corpses to medical universities, etc., for, you know, teaching and experimental purposes and whatnot. And Burke and Hare were these two kind of sinister figures who kind of uh, let their greed get the best of them and start actually killing people so they could keep supplying fresh corpses to medical universities or whatever. And I actually thought the Burke and Hare episode was all right, but it was so over-dramatized and so much artistic license was taken that it's hard to watch it and know what's actually factual. And they did uh, another episode on another figure that I've long been fascinated by, and that's Elizabeth or uh, Ursabet, Ursabeta, uh, however you pronounce her uh, original Hungarian name or whatever, uh, Bathory, the blood countess, Elizabeth Bathory. Um, and she was this real historical figure who supposedly killed and bathed in the blood, maybe not always bathed in, but at least applied the blood uh, to her face in an attempt to try to keep herself young, the blood of you know, hundreds of virgins. Uh, initially from the peasant class. Uh, then she tried, she got brazen enough to try to move on to uh, the, you know, the daughters of the aristocracy, uh, or at least she started with one or two or something like that. And that resulted in her eventually getting caught. 
And I actually, despite my own fascination with Bathory, I found the Bathory episode to be rather boring. And I think part of it was that, once again, it was just so over-dramatized that it's hard to view it. And I'm someone who's read up on Bathory and watched a lot of documentaries. But, you know, over time, you can kind of grow foggy on certain topics, even topics that you've really studied. And so even me, someone who studied up on Bathory, I was watching it. And it was hard to know where, once again, where the artistic license ended and the and the fact began. So it almost just felt like you were watching some kind of dramatized soap opera version or take on a historical character that you're interested in. But it didn't feel like there was a lot of meat on the bone. It didn't feel like you were really learning much. And... There was one episode in the second season that I just, I stopped watching it like midway. And uh, it's funny, for someone like me who can be kind of interested in darker, morbid things, the subject matter was kind of too depressing for me. It dealt with this Eastern European family. Um, and there was like, the, there was this incestuous relationship between the father and adult daughter and one of the children was the fruit of that relationship. And I kind of, I wasn't familiar with the subject, so I looked it up, and it ends with the whole family dying. So I'm like, this is kind of grossing me out and depressing me. Uh, I'm not even going to finish watching it, so I skipped that episode. And there was one episode, and I should say that Bathory episode, one saving grace is I did actually like the actress they chose to portray Bathory. I, I thought she was this kind of attractive and charming in a kind of wicked way, you know, uh, character. Uh, there was an episode I did enjoy, even though it suffered from the same problem of not knowing where the, the uh, artistic license ended and the facts began. And it, uh, one of the episodes dealt with Jack Parsons, and if you're not familiar, Jack Parsons was this real historical 20th century figure who was a brilliant scientist who worked for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the JPL. But he also was very interested in occultism and ceremonial magic. And he was actually a kind of disciple of Alistair Crowley. A lot of people say Crowley. I, b I believe the proper pronunciation is Crowley. And um, he was a practitioner of Crowley's kind of religion, Thelema. And so this episode dealt with uh, Parsons' interest in the occult and in Crowley. And I believe there's a little mnemonic device that Crowley himself used to promote one something it was a little scrap of poetry that went something like my enemies call me crowley because they seek to treat me foully oh okay i found it or at least a version of it it is pronounced crowley to remind you that i am holy but my enemies say crowley and wish to treat me foully and i i think i first heard that from uh, is it Robert Anton Wilson? Very interesting guy. Uh, I believe he's passed now. Yeah, so 
the last episode of season two deals with Parsons and uh, his uh, interest in ceremonial magic, etc. Oddly enough, they leave Hubbard out of the story. The, the story gets so bizarre that it, you would think it's fiction, just, you know, too many coincidences or whatever. Um, Parsons also knew Elron Hubbard, and Hubbard was also interested in ceremonial magic uh, at, at this point in his life, etc. Um, but they left Hubbard out of the story, and they, they seem to leave out some other stuff, and granted, it is only one episode of a series, um, but yeah, they, they do seem to take a lot of poetic license to the point, once again, where if you watch it, you're going to have trouble knowing where uh, the writers stop taking their liberties and where actual fact and history or whatever begin. Um, but that's that's my very kind of loose and rough review of uh, lore. But I would de- I'd definitely recommend watching the first season at least, and I probably should check out the podcast too. Um, if you're interested in Parsons and and uh, Crowley, like I, I know the guys in uh, Voice of Doom, I played some of their music on the show a while back. I'm friendly with a couple of guys in the band. and We talk via the Weekend Out Facebook page. But man, I got to edit this and, and go to bed. So, all right, you guys know the drill. Please like the Facebook page. Please follow the, well, eh, I'm more concerned with people liking the Facebook page, but you can follow the show on Twitter too if you want. Uh, <laughs> and uh, if you want to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash out and help the show out for as little as uh, 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time and happy Halloween, what's left of it.